I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. As all Americans confront the tragic events of the past weeks, I want to take a moment to thank you, dear We the People listeners, for educating yourselves about the Constitution. It is central to the National Constitution Center's mission to convene discussions about the difficult constitutional issues facing our nation so that we can learn together in order to form a more perfect union. On Friday, June 5th, at noon Eastern Time, we will host a national town hall discussion about policing, protests, and the Constitution. We'll begin with a keynote conversation with former Chief Judge Theodore McKee of the U.S. Court of Appeals. If you're hearing this in time, you can register to join the Zoom conversation live at constitutioncenter.org forward slash debate, or you can find the program on YouTube or on our podcasts. And now we'll dive into another crucial First Amendment topic. Last week, Twitter added a fact check message to President Trump's tweets about vote by mail and a notice that his tweets about recent protests violated Twitter's policy against glorifying violence. In response to the fact check notice, the president signed an executive order aimed at changing the liability status of online platforms for third party content under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. On today's episode of We the People, we explore Section 230 and the potential consequences of the executive order for the future of online free speech in these challenging times. I'm joined by two of America's leading experts on digital free speech. Kate Klonick is Assistant Professor of Law at St. John's School of Law and an affiliated fellow at the Yale Law School Information Society Project and in New America. She is also the author of the important Harvard Law Review article, The New Governors, The People, Rules, and Processes Governing Online Speech. Kate, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. And David French is a senior editor at The Dispatch and a columnist for Time. He most recently worked as a senior writer for National Review and a senior fellow at the National Review Institute, and he was previously president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. His next book, Divided We Fall, will be released later in 2020. David, it is always wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Kate, give us a sense of how we got to the president's executive order Twitter adopted a new policy about the speech of public figures in June, but it only applied it in the past week or so. Tell us what the policy is, how Twitter applied it, and what else has been going on that's led up to the president's executive order. Yeah, of course. Um, So in late June of 2019, so a little bit less than a year ago, um, Twitter announced, Twitter Safety announced that they were going to define public interest in a new way on Twitter. Basically, it was going to be um, that they were going to be making decisions about who was public figures and what were kind of newsworthy events. These are kind of familiar concepts if if you are um, familiar with First Amendment doctrine in any way. Um, But they were going to define what the public interest meant on Twitter. And they said that they were basically going to begin using what we call interstitials. They were going to place messages on uh, various types of content that might violate their policies, but nonetheless, they felt should be kept up um, in in the service of kind of public um, education and free speech. And so basically in doing that, the interstitial, they said, was going to basically say, and now it's familiar to us because we've seen it over and over again, this, the Twitter rules about something like X behavior, graphic violence, for example, apply to this tweet. However, Twitter has determined that it may be in the public's interest for the tweet to remain available. Learn more. And then you can link, it links to the policy 
And you can then hit the view button and view what the original tweet actually said. Um, and so it's not removed. It's just behind kind of a warning screen or this interstitial message. That's not exactly what jumped off this entire um, this entire um, kind of flame-throwing war between Twitter and Trump this last week. That was kind of kicked off because they did something totally different, which was that they added a little exclamation button and a, and a circle that said... Um, something along the lines of get the facts um, about mail-in ballot voting, which was based off of, which was in reaction to Trump's tweets on Tuesday afternoon that questioned the validity or the, or the ability to be um, basically called mail-in voting was, had huge massive potential for fraud. And so they added this little thing that was not an interstitial, that was not about violating voting, but was just giving an additional fact to this, to this, um, to this tweet that the president sent out, and that was brand new. Um, and that was really what kicked off his executive order um, about 48 hours later. So, David, we've heard Kate say the policy was adopted in June. Twitter just decided to apply it to President Trump. He then issued his threat of an executive order. And since this threat, Twitter has been busy. Last week, it labeled hundreds of other tweets, including those that falsely claimed to include images of Derek Chauvin, the white police officer charged in the third degree murder, in the death of George Floyd, and lots of others. My question to you, David, is, is this a good idea? As a defender of the First Amendment, do you think that Twitter's solution, which is to alert people when public figures violate its terms of service and its judgment, is consistent with First Amendment values or not? Well, I mean, the, the First Amendment, to, to be very precise, the First Amendment values would protect Twitter's right to set its own rules um, because the First Amendment protects private citizens uh, and private corporations from the government. And so uh, Twitter has the right to do this. This is something that is uh, completely consistent with the exercise of Twitter's First Amendment rights. But to say that this is Twitter exercising its First Amendment rights doesn't mean necessarily that it's exercising those, those rights wisely. And the, one of the problems I have in, is that I, I, I find it, especially if we're going to be talking about the president and we're going to be talking about other leading public figures, the disparate application of rules that apply to everybody else but do not apply to a special class of individuals, I think as a practical matter, uh, creates a, a, a series of problems. One, there is a uh, sense of impunity that can attach to people with position with sufficiently large platforms uh, or a sufficient amount of power that even with the Twitter, um, Twitter, to be clear, is not truly censoring these, pub these uh, public officials or uh, public figures by putting up a warning, you can still click through it in much the same way you can click through on YouTube when you see an age warning on a YouTube video. It's just one mouse click away. So that's not real censorship in any in any way. And so what you're doing is you're signaling to people that this class of user enjoys special privileges. And now, look, there are defensible reasons why Twitter would make that decision. For example, um, holding that any utterance by the president by itself is newsworthy, even if it would otherwise violate terms of service. But I do think that as a practical matter, there is a negative consequence of carving out a class of people to whom the rules don't really apply. These are the rules that Twitter has. Twitter can set these rules. I'm not saying that's a constitutional problem. I think it's a, it's a practical problem. And then there's also the practical difficulty, uh, as, as you saw all across the length and breadth of Twitter after the president was fact-checked, was then all of these various voices quote-tweeting uh, factually incorrect things from all other different politicians saying, where's the fact-check? And so then the decision of who you fact-check and who you don't fact-check is perceived to be a political act, which then causes even further complication. So, Kate, David has identified two potential problems with policy as he sees it. First, disparate treatment. You're creating a class of people, some public figures but not others, to whom the rules don't quite apply. And second, they apply to some public figures and not others. And it is indeed the case that President Trump's tweets had stood out to Twitter officials as early as 2018 when he discussed launching nuclear weapons at North Korea, which some employees thought violated company policies against violent threats 
but they were only applied recently. What do you think of those concerns? And how is it possible for Twitter in an even-handed way to review every tweet by a public official and to label it without discrimination? Yeah. Um, so no, I do want to give Jeff a shout out um, because I think that people forget that you, I think in 20, was it 2012? Was it that far? I can't remember the exact year, but you were the person who wrote Google Gatekeepers um, for New York Times Magazine. You wrote another great piece for the New Republic and um, you kind of called all of this stuff out, highlighted the fact that platforms and companies were making these vital decisions on free speech and drawing these lines on private platforms. Um, and, you know, it was another eight years, I think, before the world started to take it seriously. And you were just, you were just so far out ahead of it. Um, so anyways, I just think that those are great pieces to go back and read. You talk about the innocence of Muslims video and like other things that were early stage, just in case people forget that we've been here before, um, more than a year before, more than two years before, like actually really been here for quite a while. So uh, just putting that out there for the for everyone on the podcast. Um, but as to your question about kind of what I think of the policies and them def of these uh, companies defining public figures. So this has been an ongoing issue for all of the platforms for a long time. Um, one of my favorite stories, at least at Facebook, was during the Boston Marathon bombing when they had a very graphically um, graphic image of a man's leg having been blown off. And it was being published by the AP. And so it was in m plenty of newspapers and news reporting. But according to Facebook's rules, which was like their rule at the time was, you know, summarized as if you can see the insides on the outside, then that comes down. Um, that there was, they didn't want to run that image. And someone was like, it's newsworthy. And the person who was in charge, Judd Hoffman, the person who's in charge of this was like, you know, beheadings in Mexico are newsworthy. Just because, you know, this is happening in Boston doesn't mean that it's any more newsworthy than when this happens in Tijuana or it happens in, you know, or it happens in um, South Korea and so, or wherever else. And so I think, you know, and he didn't, he really resisted this newsworthy public figure distinction. But there's, be, and I, this is like kind of where I agree with David completely, which is that you do end up recapitulating the power dynamics and the power struggles of the real world just online. And all of the democratic potential of the internet gets lost, I think, when you start to have special exceptions for various people around this idea. Um, at the same time, um, you have moments like Philando Castile, like the violent shooting of a black man when, and his, uh, girlfriend, um, streamed it live on Facebook Live at the time that it was happening. And they put up an interstitial on that and kept it up. Um, that was, I think, in 2017 or 20, yeah, 2017. Um, and I, those are the types of moments that we should be focusing on is the internet empowering and less on kind of, getting wrapped up in people who already have power in a microphone, like just perpetuating that. Thanks very much for the nice shout outs. David, the tweets that Twitter removed last week, including a fact checking labels to messages from Joao Lijian, a spokesman for the Chinese foreign ministry who claimed the coronavirus outbreak may have begun in the United States. And then Twitter added notices on hundreds of tweets, I'm getting this from the New York Times, that falsely claimed a photo of a man in a red baseball cap was Derek Chauvin, the officer involved in the death of George Floyd. To return to your practical question, how in practice could Twitter possibly affix labels to every potentially misleading tweet on its platform, as well as to all of the many tweets that might violate its terms of service that are posted by public figures? And if you don't think that that's possible, is Mark Zuckerberg correct from Facebook? Does he have the right approach when he says that he doesn't want Facebook to act as an arbiter of truth? Well, so the first question about what can Twitter do this broadly? Um, absent overwhelming investment in manpower and resources, the answer is clearly no. It has to pick and choose what it is going to fact check. And it could do that on the basis of any number of criteria, including 
whether something begins to trend on Twitter, where where everyone in a particular locality is going to see a name trending or a a, a term trending, do they then would they intervene? I mean, they're they're going to directly fact check, which is its own question. If they're going to directly fact check, absent at just a massive investment of resources. They're going to have to figure out on what they're going to choose to fact check and why. And then I would say be transparent about that so that we know here are the criteria and can hold them accountable to that transparently announced criteria. Um, there's another way of doing it, which is the Facebook way, which is not – it's not that Facebook is just washes its hands. I mean Facebook, there is – you know, there are independent fact checkers, non-Facebook fact checkers that get involved in the in the Facebook process. I mean whereas – Twitter, in the case of Donald Trump, fact-checked Trump directly. That was Twitter's speech. When you clicked on that link uh, on the on on Donald Trump's tweet about mail-in ballots, that was Twitter's speech right there. That was Twitter's fact-check. Um, other platforms may enter into relationships or utilize um, independent third-party fact-checkers uh, and and provide notations that independent third-party fact-checkers have raised their own doubts. And and my own view on this is let different companies reach different conclusions. Um, if there is a there's a phrase I've kind of grown weary of, and that is big tech, um, I understand it as a descriptive, just like I understand the term the media as a descriptive. But one of the things I think that that term does is it describes different companies that have different cultures and different policies, like they're just all one big Borg cube for a Star Trek reference. And, and I just don't think that's the way it is. So I, I like to see different companies that have different cultures and different philosophies attacking these problems in different ways because why? They're hard problems. They're hard problems. So, you know, in not, I would say that not one of us can sit here and describe what's the best way for all of these different companies that have different platforms and different methods of communication that dominate in those platforms as to how they should do it. So I'm, I'm happy to see other companies try different approaches. Kate, do you agree with Mark Zuckerberg's statement that Facebook should not be an arbiter of truth? And tell us about what some have called a new Supreme Court for content that Facebook announced at the beginning of March. One of the co-chairs is Stanford Law Professor Michael McConnell, the former federal judge. You followed that closely. Tell us what the Supreme Court is supposed to do, and do you think that it's a good idea consistent with free speech values? Yeah, I think that there is, um, that Zuckerberg is completely correct in saying that Facebook can't be the arbiter of truth for the same reasons that David just highlighted, which is that this, this when, where do you draw the line of what you're going to fact check and what you're not going to fact check? And there needs to be a kind of a diversity of rule sets about what different types of rules around speech you have on different platforms. And I do think that that is a good thing. Um, the other thing that I really think you have right now, and you kind of are seeing this with the employee walkouts in particular at Facebook, is that I think that there's a breakdown in, in um, accountability. Uh, and what I mean by that is it's always been there, but I think people are just kind of realizing it for the first time. Users are seeing that, especially now that we're all in quarantine and 95% of our speech is through a private platform of one sort or the other, um, they're seeing how powerful these private platforms are. Uh, over a public right, and that basically there's just a small group of people in the C-suite that are making a lot of these decisions. And I think that there is a kind of a call for there being more accountability to users, people having more of a say in how the speech um, platforms works. Uh, this is obviously incredibly difficult to transition to or pull off. Um, and although it's not a form of direct accountability in any way, one of the things that Facebook has been trying to work towards in doing this, and they're a little bit of head of the ball, I think, on this, um, was uh, last November, uh, November 2018, uh, Mark Zuckerberg announced that he was going to start what he called uh, the Facebook Oversight Board, which was going to be like the new Supreme Court of content moderation on Facebook. And I spent the last year, so almost exactly a year today, um, 
being embedded at Facebook uh, on independent grants and um, kind of writing about what I saw there and the build out of this entire project, which is kind of imagined as a constitutional type of court sitting on the executive branch, as it were, of, of Facebook. And in the narrowest capacity, what the oversight board will do, it's right now it's about 20 people, but it'll grow hopefully to be a little like 40 or more or less 40 people. Um, is to be an independent organization that hears appeals when people are censored on the platform and they think that they've been erroneously censored. And basically, Facebook has agreed to be bound by those decisions. It's a very narrow, narrow kind of, um, a very narrow jurisdiction. Um, Facebook has also reserved the right to ask the, fa the oversight board for advice on policy or advice on certain types of, um, on certain types of maneuvers or possibly, um, they can appeal something that a user doesn't appeal themselves. They, the Facebook thinks that they want the oversight boards ruling on it. Um, but it's a pretty, interesting group of about 20 incredibly, incredibly prestigious people that have deep expertise in freedom of expression. And um, it'll be, it's certainly, I think, a better solution than letting a bunch of elite people that happen to be at the top of these companies continue to make these rules for us. But it's not, it's far from perfect. And, um, but it is, I think, an important step in basically not democratizing, but making these platforms, these private platforms, more participatory. David, the Facebook Supreme Court is conceived of as a kind of appellate body. It's not making initial content decisions. Is it appropriate to have an independent appellate body reviewing content decisions? If so, what sort of transparency would you like to see? Would you want to see written opinions like the real Supreme Court? Or is it wrong for private companies to farm out to independent people basic decisions about content. You know, I think it's a great experiment that could well end up being a fantastic idea, <laughs> depending on the execution. Um, and the, the reason why I say it is one of the, so if you are a user of a company, uh, if you're a user of a, of a, a Facebook, there are some things, you know, just absolutely. Like if you're putting up nudity, it's going to come down. If you're, you know, there are things that you know with absolute certainty that if you put it up, it's going to come down. You you understand that that's part of the conditions of using Facebook. And if you have a problem with that, uh, that's not an injustice visited upon you. But there are gray areas in Facebook's policies. And one of the things that I think helps a enhance a regular ordinary person's experience of the Internet is if they know where they stand it's the confusion, it's the uncertainty that can lead to perhaps excessive self-censorship. It can sometimes lead to excessive line testing. Uh, but one of the things I think that this body can do is by creating sort of a, a, a body of decisions, not unlike a kind of a common law of Facebook, um, it can create additional certainty for people. People know will know increasingly over time where they stand. And because these policies, as anybody who's ever ex put together, say, a university policy at a private school knows, these things are not self-interpreting. Um, they're not, they're, their meaning is not always self-evidently obvious to everybody, especially to people who are non-lawyers. Um, and so I think creating this kind of common law of Facebook could go a long way towards creating this sort of like the same kind of sense of certainty and boundaries that we have as citizens subject to or protected by the First Amendment, that body of First Amendment case law, because the, the actual text of the First Amendment is not plainly obvious what it means in all circumstances, that body of case law gives us that degree of certainty. A body of Facebook case law would give you that degree of certainty potentially. And I think it's a really, really interesting experiment. And again, I go back to the point I made before. It's great to see different companies try different things. And to the extent that they do try different things, I think it also provides a sense to the the American public that they are not dealing with some, a sort of hostile, malicious Borg <laughs> that seeks to assimilate them into the all-powerful power, tech entity. And I do think that that sense of experimentation is promising. Kate, how do Facebook and Google treat objectionable speech by public figures? Do they treat them differently than Twitter? 
And will this new Supreme Court at Facebook be in the business of making the decisions that Twitter is now making about whether the president's tweets violate Facebook's community standards? Or does the fact that Facebook distinguishes between private and public figures and other parts of its community standards avoid this problem? Yeah, no, I think that this is this is something. So I wanted to point something out, which is that there's two, there are very fine-grained issues, but like in the Twitter um, the Twitter labels that started this all off on Tuesday, the bat that were around the mail-in ballots, those were exclamation points that just said, get the facts about the mail-in ballots. And then he, and then Trump issued his, um, executive order. And then he said something that was a- around the idea of loot and shoot. I think if something like, well, if there's looting, there'll be shooting. And that was seen as like a threat or a call to violence. And that was given an interstitial like they give to all of the other public figures that we talked about. So there are two different incidences. And one is a decision to engage in labeling based on misinformation. And one is about violating the underlying um, community standards. Um, and those are very different because those require different levels of work as like we've, we've discussed. Um, and and Facebook has been do, has made all new rules around its public figures coming into the COVID crisis um, for two reasons. One is because of the public health concerns that misinformation around Corona can like can put out there, and just how devastating um, that can be, and the real world harm associated with that. And what, I was on a call like I think three days after the pandemic started with the head of public policy. Or one of the heads of public policy, um, kind of giving, and they were giving a slide about how they were dealing with this. And I asked how they were going to deal with this with a public figure exception. And if someone, they said, well, it doesn't matter. Even if Elon Musk tweets something terrible about, a, you know, about the, um, about that's not true about the coronavirus, like we'll take that down. I was like, okay, fine. Elon Musk is a public figure. A lot of First Amendment and free speech like exceptions around public figures actually was originally, as you know, we know, like public figure is a much later formulation of what was initially a political figure, uh, right? And New York Times v. Sullivan, it wasn't until Gertz that people started to say, you know, 25 years later that people started to say um, public figure and came up with this ter- that terminology. Um, and they said, no, even a pub, even a political figure, we just, we just took down all of the tweets from, um, Bolsonaro in Brazil saying that children didn't get coronavirus. We took them all down. I go, so you're saying that if Trump tweets something like that, or is tr- Trump states something like that on Facebook, you'll remove it. And they specifically said yes. Now, that was a really specific um, exception around public health. Um, I don't know if they're going to carry that forward, going, you know, carrying that through going forward. And you just saw Mark Zuckerberg kind of walk that back um, in, in the kind of when it comes to um, election-based misinformation or disinformation. And so um, they're kind of clearly drawing the line here and moving around. It is something that the Oversight Board could conceivably weigh in on. Um, it just won't be necessarily binding on Facebook. But at the same time, I would rather have 20 people like say something, you know, who are all over the, all over the world with all of their varied life experience from Yemen to Taiwan to, um, to India, um, kind of weigh in on something like this that are experts in free expression than have it just be something that Nick Clegg and Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg come up with, you know, in the back rooms of Facebook. David, you've just heard Kate say that the platforms are coming to very different solutions. Facebook created in the wake of Corona an exception for public figures, so they can't make misleading statements about the virus, but they can about elections. On Twitter, both statements by public figures would be labeled. You've recommended letting a thousand flowers bloom. Is there anything to be said for a kind of underpinning of First Amendment values respected across the platform so that rather than creating lots of exceptions on the fly, the platforms broadly try to adopt the First Amendment presumption that speech by public figures is always of public interest and it's not up to anyone, citizens or experts or review boards or tech executives, to decide what sort of speech citizens should be interested in. Well, uh, Jeff, as a shout out to you, uh, it won't be nearly as good as Kate's shout out to you, but you, as the person who's read more federal, more and read and absorbed more of the Federalist Papers than anybody uh, I've ever met in my life, and I mean that as the highest possible compliment, um, 
I would call my approach the Federalist Number Ten for uh, for big tech, which is that pluralism, <laughs> pluralism in these companies. Uh, you know, look, if you are a sufficient, if you are a public figure like the president, or even a celebrity like Kim Kardashian, or um, Sasha Baron Cohen, who famously delivered this stinging indictment of tech and Section Two Thirty recently. Any one of these platforms isn't going to silence any of those people. Um, Trump's tweet or, or Trump's sentiments or Trump's ideas are going to get out there. The question that you have, I think, for these companies is what is the culture that you're building and what is, what is the community that you, are, you intend to build? Now, my gen, general view is the broader you cast the net on this, and this is, could get us into some of the Section 230. So if you say, I want basically everyone to be on this in this community, then I would, I would argue, and I have argued before, that then the more people you want, the more you're casting a broad net for everybody, the more I would argue that you should apply some, some basic First Amendment principles, not because you have to, actually the First Amendment protects you from, being, from having to do that, but because in our culture, we've learned a lot about how do you manage in, uh, the competing interests of an extremely diverse and extremely uh, often contentious public square. And First Amendment principles like viewpoint neutrality, to take one principally, have been indispensable. So I would say that if you're a platform and you're going to say, we're only going to fact check Democrats and we're not going to fact check Republicans or vice versa, that's... I would say you can do that. That's not a good move. That's an unwise. So I would say whatever principle you articulate, as much as possible for these big platforms that try to sweep in a big bulk of Americans, as much as possible, uh, apply a viewpoint neutrality. Now, that's not, uh, that's not absolute. There are some, some kinds of expression that may manifest a viewpoint that you know, are, are out of bounds, uh, like, you know, if you're wanting to have a family platform, actual nudity is, you know, nudity is a form of expression. But someone who's advocating for nudity on Facebook without providing nudity should be on Facebook. And that's what I mean by sort of viewpoint neutrality. And so that I think the more you sweep, the more you're trying to sweep the vast bulk of Americans into your platform, the more I think that is a principle that regardless of your ideology, regardless of of your point of view in the public square, we're going to give you a fair shake is, is a vital principle. Now, you can't apply that into the entirety of the internet because let's suppose you want to start, say, a Christian dating site <laughs> or a atheist dating site or whatever, and you have comment boards and you have user interaction. It's totally fine to say, hey, look, I mean, you know, this is a Christian dating site. We'll take the Muslim matchmaking to muslimmatchmaking.com. I mean, there are ways in which viewpoint neutrality doesn't work for every place that opens itself up to user comments. But I would say the more you're a large-scale social media platform, the more viewpoint neutrality is wise. I don't think it should be mandated by the government. In fact, I think that's a violation of their rights, but I believe it's wise. Kate, David very interestingly suggests that viewpoint neutrality could be a core principle to be applied by all the platforms. Any follow-up thoughts on, on that interesting suggestion? Yeah, so I think that uh, David is correct there. Well, he is correct um, that there is uh, the idea of the First Amendment protecting your ability as a platform to be allowed to decide um, what is or is not on your um, is on your platform is why Facebook looks more like Disney World than Twitter does. I mean, that is, I mean, it is, and I mean, that's also, uh, uh, by the way, like part of it, it's not a Christian dating site. It is a gated platform or gated community. You don't share publicly. Most people don't share completely publicly on Facebook. It's only viewable to those that follow them or that they're friends with. Whereas most people on Twitter do not share privately. They share publicly and try to do it, do things that way. And it changes the nature of the product and it changes the nature of the speech that exists on the site. Um, what I think is super interesting, and I'm glad you kind of brought up this idea of viewpoint neutrality um, and everything else because it gets us back to the 230 discussion. What I think is fascinating um, about about this, uh, this 
everything that's happened this week are these ongoing claims of conservative bias in media. And as someone who has like talked to all of the people, not all of, but a lot of the people who are foundational at Google and uh, Facebook and uh, YouTube and Twitter in making the policies of the site going back to 2004, 2008, 2012, um, the the ball has not like the 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 gamut of what is acceptable on the platform has not changed that much to be perfectly honest in like 15 years people wanted nazi like not anyone who was like promoting like nazi um, speech like taken down or anti-Semitism taken down, um, white supremacists taken down. Um, th- uh, that type of speech was always something that people really um, bucked at, but the and wanted the the sites to remove. But what you see in the in what you see that's fascinating is not that there's conservative bias out there, but in fact that there just is a much greater incidence of conservative voices saying that type moving into to the realm of that type of extremist content. And so it's not that the like the all of a sudden the sites have decided to target conservatives in any way. It's that like the nature of the speech has really skewed so that all of a sudden you're like the N of 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 users of that are saying offensive things has just increased enormously, not the rule that was undermining that. Now you can tell me that there's like that, that maybe that's like getting the causative structure slightly wrong and everything else, but I do think that it's worth noting that there wasn't kind of this mens rea of going after conservatives um, or targeting conservatives necessarily. That it was about targeting the type of speech itself, and then and like everything else has kind of fallen out of that. David, now let's turn to Section Two Thirty of the Communications Decency Act. Can you describe what Section Two Thirty? says what it does and whether you think it's a good idea to maintain it in its current form. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that because uh, I don't think any federal law, and I wonder if Kate would agree with this, has been subject to more disinformation and outright dumb commentary um, than Section 230. Uh, And to really understand it, you just have to have a a little bit of history, and it revolves around two court cases in the early 1990s, sort of at the dawn of the internet as we understand it, and one involving uh, CompuServe and one involving Prodigy. And CompuServe had this sort of policy structure where whatever you wanted to post up onto CompuServe, you could do it. CompuServe wasn't moderating. If you, you know, what whatever you wanted to say, you were going to get to say your piece. Uh, and somebody who had been defamed on CompuServe sued the platform uh, and sued not you know wasn't just interested in in collecting money from the person who actually defamed them, but also CompuServe, which gave them the platform. And a federal court judge in New York said, "Nope, nope. The, the, because CompuServe CompuServe allows a lot of different speech, um, you can't sue CompuServe for that. The person who said it, sure, not CompuServe." Prodigy had a different set of policies. Prodigy moderated its contents. And so someone who alleged defamation sues, and a court in New York says, yeah, because Prodigy moderates, you can sue Prodigy. Now think for a second of the bind that that put these companies in. The only way that I'm going to be free of liability is if I let everything in, if I'm going to let user-generated content in. I got to just let it all in. Let the sewage flow. (laughs) Uh, Be gab you know, to, to talk about this, this uh, social media site that just lets everything. And then, but it sort of became an all or nothing dilemma. It's, it's everything, all the sewage, or it's nothing. And Congress rightfully recognized that this is inimical to free speech as we understand it. Think of a real world example. Let's say, um, well, not real world. Let's do fiction for a minute. Uh, if you've seen the marvelous sitcom Parks and Recreation, and Pawnee, Indiana. And Leslie Nope is hearing from the very eccentric citizens of Pawnee, Indiana at a, at a public forum. And somebody gets up and starts spouting nonsense, just total nonsense. Under the way that these two courts worked, Leslie Nope would be, the only way Leslie Nope is not liable is if she just lets him keep spouting the nonsense. The minute she steps in and says no nonsense, the minute then she's liable for all the speech of the people who are at the meeting, which doesn't make any sense at all. So what Section 230 did is it essentially said that 
you're not liable. These uh, internet interactive computer services are not liable for the speech of their users, and they are entitled to moderate that speech. They can moderate it uh, on all kinds of grounds, and uh, including with this sort of catch-all phrase, otherwise objectionable. Uh, they can moderate speech that they find objectionable, and they can do it in good faith. And that launched the modern internet. If you take for granted your ability to do a, a um, restaurant re review on Yelp, comment on Trump on Facebook, get into an argument about Star Wars, which is the worst Star Wars movie, everyone knows it's Phantom Menace on Reddit, you can do that now without having to worry, without these platforms having to worry that all of the conversation going on, they're liable for. And so what's happened now is people have said, well, Section 230 needs to be changed because they say it's a subsidy to these companies. And that if we're going to give them a break and protect them from liability, well, then they need to adopt policies that we want that protects the voices we want to protect. And so that's at the heart of a lot of this argument for Section 230 reform is all of that free speech and all of that free inquiry that you've seen. They say that's a problem now. And, and there's been a lot of misinformation given to the public. They've told the public that these companies got Section 230 protection so that they'd be neutral and let everyone speak when it's the opposite. It's the opposite. They were granted this protection so that they could moderate. And, and then one last thing. I know I'm monologuing. One last thing. Um, there's this idea that there's this publisher platform distinction. That the the instant you start to moderate or control content on your website, you're a you're a publisher and you can be held liable under defamation law. Um, but if you remain that neutral, then you're remain neutral and let everyone speak. Then you're a platform. No, as soon as you hear somebody saying that, it's like they're wearing a sign on their forehead that says, "I don't know what I'm talking about." Many plat many of these platforms are publishers and platforms. My own, where I work at the dispatch, we have a comment section. That's section subject to protection under Section 230. My, our edited content, like my newsletters, that's I'm liable and the dispatch is liable for it. Twitter, when it put that little uh, exclamation point on Donald Trump's mail-in ballot tweet, and it provided its own speech on that fact check, that's Twitter functioning as a publisher of that speech. But it's a platform of Donald Trump speech. When you think of it like that, it all sort of starts to make sense. Uh, but we don't want to go back to any sort of legal regime that says you got to let everything on or you're going to be liable for everything if you try to control any aspect of it. And that, that's, that would be one of the worst acts of practical censorship that I can imagine. Kate, do you agree or disagree with David's robust defense of Section 230, which he has made in print as well? Listeners can check it out. And he argues that rather than forcing a binary choice between take it down or leave it up, 230 allows more free speech to blossom. I am breathlessly endorse David's take on Section 230. <laughs> no, but I, I will I will say that like that there is Listen, it's super misunderstood. One of the things that I personally laugh at, like I just, I just don't understand why more people don't put it in the turn, like don't kind of understand. It's not that complicated. Like what exactly as David kind of lays out, it's not that complicated once you understand the purpose and the motivations behind why it was put into effect. Like then you can very easily decide whether, how, and when it needs to change. And you get stuck in the mud of like publisher and publisher and editorial conduct and all of these types of things of like the language of the statute. I just, those have been interpreted by 25 years of courts at this point, And it's just like not worth it. I don't think it's worth going into. Um, I also just kind of laugh because you have conservatives in particular say things like Ted Cruz will say something like come out and like, or, you know, or Josh Hawley will come out in like in the, in these robust moments of holding these platforms to first amendment standards. If you held Facebook or Twitter to a First Amendment standard would be full of spam and pornography and hate speech. That is what a First Amendment standard is, is that the government can't force you to take things down. Section 230 was intended also to kind of give an incentive structure to platforms to be good Samaritans and to act in a way that kind of cleaned up some of the, like, the most, the grossest places on the internet, but didn't censor it entirely. It let it go somewhere, right? It just wasn't like where, it wasn't like in front of us as we we're eating our breakfast cereal, right? 
And so I think that this is a, I think that this is a, like a wonder, like everything that David said is exactly right. I think that there are certainly parts about Section 230 and the internet now in 2020 that need like neat call for some type of better structure because I do think that there are harms that get perpetuated by some of these platforms and the amplification services that they prove that they provide that are greater than whatever was happening in 1995 or 1996 when section 230 was drafted but I tend to t- think that those um, come out of mostly uh, a conflation between content and conduct uh, and whether or not the platforms themselves are really uh, a or a given platform is really about like maybe posting content ver- and promoting like user speech versus like some other type of service. So to use um, David's dating app or dating like site um, example, there's a case in the Second Circuit. It was like thrown out because of Section 230, but it kind of made this interesting distinction. There was a man who was um, stalked by an ex-boyfriend on the app Grindr um, that basically sent 1,000 or 1,500 people to use Grindr falsely to put up a fake profile and send 1,500 men at various points to his house to rape him. That was just like this terrible kind of of atrocious, atrocious use of this platform. Grindr wouldn't do anything about it, wouldn't take down the fake profile when it was told. It like had its, I think it had its geolocation services manipulated, a whole bunch of other things. That wasn't like, but that service was not particular. And that, the court found that Section 230 protected that from suit, protected Grinder from suit. In my opinion, and I, and I say this tenuously being a huge supporter of the First Amendment and free speech, I think that that type of website is really more of a service or more of a con or something of that nature than it is about promoting promoting speech. It's about matching people in some way. And so I think that maybe that there could be carve-outs that are more conduct-based in Section 230 that would make more sense. But again, like with anything, these are just incredibly fact-based distinctions to draw. Courts have struggled with them. They get one, like the Supreme Court gets once a free, like First Amendment case a year on these things. And Facebook and Twitter get, you know, a million a day. And so it's a very, it's a very hard thing to kind of put into scale to expect them to do. David, does the president have the authority by executive order to repeal or limit Section 230, which, after all, is part of a law passed by Congress? So the short answer is no. The longer answer is maybe. <laughs> and, and here's what I mean by it. Okay, look, I mean, it's Civics 101 that the president cannot overrule a statute by an executive order. It's Civics 102, that you can't overrule a statute by regulation. Uh, It's Civics 103, that an executive agency can often alter the interpretation of a statute by regulation, and there will often be judicial deference attached to that altered interpretation of a statute. So at first, when the president wrote his executive order, there was sort of this widespread view of, well, this is a little bit, this is just posturing. I mean, it's an executive order. You With an executive order, you can't alter a statute. You can't overrule a statute. Then I looked closely at it, and it has some provisions that are troubling. So one of them, one of them is he directs the Secretary of Commerce to engage in rulemaking, a regulatory process that's going to further interpret the words, and what I think is most ominous, and, and Kate might find other aspects more ominous than I do, but this one is one of the ones I found most ominous, was to uh, provide an, an interpretation of the words in good faith attaching to the moderation element of Section 230 and defining what in good faith means. And the regulations would then therefore you know, delegate to federal agencies the ability to make that interpretation and to take action based on that interpretation, which could be a regulatory means of dangerously limiting 230. Um, it would be subject to court challenge, of course. Uh, it may or may not survive court challenge, but that's how a regulatory process can, in a practical sense, modify a statute. The, regu- the executive order had some other aspects to it, such as directing the FCC to see if there were deceptive trade practices engaged in by internet companies. One, I think that was, well, this might be in getting, it's neck and neck for the gold and silver of most ominous part. So 
I was just talking to somebody who told me, no, no, the the, reg- the rulemaking aspect isn't the most ominous part. It's the activating state attorneys general to engage in their own inquiry about uh, deceptive, unfair and deceptive practices by internet companies and also which empowers them and asks them to engage in an inquiry into the algorithms, to the inner workings of these uh, private corporations to a really remarkable degree. And so you, I looked at that. No, that executive order does not repeal Section 230, but there are aspects of it that are uh, a, a genuine threat to the structure and intent of Section 230. And and um, one last thing, Kate, uh, and I wonder what Kate would think of this idea um, because it, it's ironically enough, a lot of this, a lot of this argument for more government censorship is coming from social conservative politicians like a Ted Cruz or a Josh Hawley, who are really wanting to bring in sort of like the full breadth, the First Amendment into these social media platforms. And I wonder if they, you could start more accurately labeling their initiatives as the "Bring Porn to Facebook" initiative, because that's what the practical effect of a lot of this effort would be. Well, well, I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear about the practical effect. But before we talk about the practical effect, I'd love Kate's response to David's Civics 3.0 version because this is a very sophisticated audience. Kate, let's dig into the potential that the executive order has to change the interpretation of 230. I heard David say the executive order asks the FCC to review potential ambiguity in the good faith element in Section 230, which limits liability for removing content if the moderation was. A voluntary action, and there's also the request that the FTC could bring a claim for unfair deceptive acts if a platform promises to be an open forum but has a bias against specific users. So how much ambiguity is there in the statute, and might the executive order survive a court challenge in any form? I mean, this is how something, and I've said this a few times, there's a couple of ways that this can end up going into effect um, outside of the state AG and FTC and FCC, which I'll get to in like in one second. But um, basically, uh, this happens like David posts something on Facebook or Twitter, Twitter puts up one of his little exclamation points. Uh, or removes the piece entirely. David's upset about it, goes to a court, sues, and asks the asks the federal judge to basically, or the or the state judge, depending on where you decide to sue. Um, ask the federal judge to have um, to basically to uh, assert to use. Uh, the executive order as the as the standard by which to understand Section 230. I think, given how short that executive order is and unsophisticated, I think that any judge is going to look at the bulk of federal consensus uh, out of the courts around Section 230 and not give great heed to the executive order. But maybe, and a, a number of people that I've talked to have are similarly kind of optimistic that it won't be given that much breath. On the other hand, another way that this would come into effect is, as we talked before about the First Amendment rights of the platforms themselves, is that the First Amendment right or the platforms could basically use the exec, sue and state that the executive order is a breach of their First Amendment rights in some capacity or threatens their First Amendment rights um, in some capacity. The final thing about the FTC and the FCC is, and I don't, I'm not, I'm like, I haven't heard anyone say that about the state AG thing. It's funny that you, it's funny that that kind of struck, that that stuck out to you, David, because a lot of people have said to me that that's kind of that, I mean, that that might happen, but that it's just kind of, it's unlikely that a lot of energy is going to be put into that, at least in the, in the immediate term. Um, but I know that I just was talking to Tim Wu today, um, in a, who has written a lot about this issue. And he was saying that he just wrote an op-ed that's going to be coming out in the New York Times that just kind of urges the FTC and FCC to ignore this order. And a lot, and just like, just kind of pretend like it didn't happen because he has no, because the president has no enforcement power to make them do these things. It would be kind of at their discretion. And so I, and this kind of 
this kind of actually like dovetails with a bunch of conversations that I've had in the last week with various nonprofits that typically um, do litigation in this area, like the Knight Institute, Center for Democracy and Technology, EFF, um, all of which are kind of on the fence about whether to um, bring any suits or to bring any action or support action because they're afraid that it might give air to the dumpster fire that is this executive order. And so in, in, in an effort to kind of smother it, just like kind of ignore it and act like it doesn't happen. So I don't know if I'm quite as worried about the executive order, but I do take it generally as just this red meat that the president threw to his constituents to really kind of drum up. And he just doesn't lose no matter what happens with this executive order, if it's ignored or not. If it's ignored, then he can blame it on the courts and everyone else, and that's fine. And he did what he had to do to try to stop um, conservative bias in social media. And if it gets taken up, then great. He like he succeeded. And so I just don't think that like politically, I just don't think it I just think it was a win for him. Thanks for that. And thanks for noting Tim Wu's bed, which has just been posted. Uh, David Tim Wu argues that by retaliating against Twitter for what it said in its warning labels, Mr. Trump violated the First Amendment, official reprisal for protected speech, as the Supreme Court has put it, offends the Constitution. And because Tim Wu argues that the executive order is unconstitutional, he says that Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit, and so forth should simply ignore it. Your quick response to that interesting, provocative argument. And then let's really just dig in on one final beat on the practical effects. If Section 230 were repealed, you said that it could be called a bring porn to Facebook order. Some others have suggested that it could be a take President Trump off of Facebook order because Facebook would have more of an incentive. In fact, it would be required to avoid legal liability to take down any posts or tweets that might be false or threats or actually violate the First Amendment itself. Yeah. Um, so first on on the Wu op-ed, I think that if the FCC or FTC took action immediately, unilateral, well, at the president's direction, punitive against Twitter, I think there's a, a, a strong argument that that would be, constitute retaliation that would violate the First Amendment. The one thing that I that I think is a longer, a more medium term after effect of the executive order is that Trump did direct the Secretary of Commerce to file a petition for rulemaking, to go through a regulatory rulemaking process subject to the Administrative Procedure Act that would purport to modify federal interpretations of Section 230. That, which is a more medium term thing, um, that would would have the potential of creating some sort of substantive, unknown yet substantive change in the law. And if it goes all the way through APA rulemaking, would then be subject to deference from the courts under the Chevron doctrine, unless it you know violated the constitutional rights of these corporations. And so I do think that there is that medium-term threat. If Trump loses, I don't think this rule this rulemaking just disappears in a puff of smoke. If he wins, it it may well endure. Um, and so I think that 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 rulemaking is a um, a real threat. And as for the second part of your question, this it's a weird a game of chicken that's being played here, because essentially what Trump is saying is. I'm going to change the the I want to change the law that essentially makes your very platform possible because you have censored me. Gambling that you're going to resist that strongly even though if Trump succeeded in dramatically revising these rules, one of the first people knocked off Twitter would be Donald Trump. <laughs> I mean the Joe Scarborough um, tweets alone would be grounds to toss him off of Twitter. So what, what you have is this very bizarre game of chicken that essentially says, I, the bull in the China shop, I want you to consider to, I want you to, con to continue to allow me to break all the China. And because if you don't let me do that, I'm going to enact rules that, yeah, they might punish me, but they'll punish every other little smaller bull in the China shop and they will result in the the shutdown of your platform or the dramatic revision and maybe abs destroy the commercial viability of your platform and that is that's the sort of the 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 game of legal chicken that's being played here but he doesn't really have 
absent an act of Congress, he doesn't really have the ability to follow through on that. And and there's even an interesting question. Even if you revoked Section 230 tomorrow, there's a very interesting constitutional question as to whether something that looks a lot like Section 230 wouldn't be required by the First Amendment anyway. And I'd be fascinated to hear what Kate thinks about that. <laughs> well, I am too, but it is time for closing arguments in this absolutely wonderful discussion. So I'll ask Kate to sum up the threads of the great discussion. You both talked about having different platforms take different approaches and discussed your support for Section 230. Kate, do you believe in the wake of this week's remarkable executive order, in the end, once the dust settles, will speech be more or less free on the internet? Oh boy. Um, well, to kind of to kind of um, expand or to kind of recast um, David's bull in the China shop um, analogy, I would actually say that this is what happens when you care about outcome and you don't care about principles. Um, this is uh, this is exactly the type of situation in which when all you care about is keeping your speech up and what's happening to you, the, and you decide to make a rule about that, it's going to swing right back around on you one of these days, um, and there's you're just as going to be caught up in it just as much as um, your enemies will be. And I kind of, I, in that sense, um, if it, I do think that there will be, if if this ends up becoming having more teeth than I think it does, the executive order will someday come to kind of turn on um, turn on Trump in in one way or another. Um, and I, I, I guess I just. I hope that here's the most optimistic take, and I kind of like to end on a note of optimism because God, this has just been a complete like, this has been a bad week. <laughs> it's been a bad three months. Like, okay, we could all kind of use something to to kind of be positive about. I would say that like, and Jeff, you can you speak to this more than anyone in your history with this issue. This has been in the last like four or five years um, a massive education about what speech is and what the freedom of expression really means in today's world, in a transnational world, in a global world, in a world with the First Amendment, in a world with, you know, GDPR and all these other types of, um, all of these other types of laws. I do think that moments like this do end up raising public awareness around these issues and forcing people to have really hard conversations with each other about what it means to be a public figure, what newsworthiness really means, whether we want to censor people, whether we want to not censor people, who's harmed by speech, who benefits from speech, what power structures are kind of become being recreated in an online space um, without us even realizing it. Um, and I just kind of hope that out of this is like, a general, um, a generally, like we do get to an answer where we can possibly move Section 230 or how we regulate this type of thing online, um, so that we don't have um, mass over censorship or you know, uh, Facebook, uh, Facebook for porn, as, as David, as Josh Hawley apparently wants us to have. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Thanks also for the note of optimism during this extraordinarily challenging week for. America and for the world. David, the last word is to you. You can be optimistic or pessimistic, but please share with our great We the People friends your thoughts about whether when the dust is settled in the wake of this executive order, speech will be more or less free on the internet. Well, you know, I, I would end up by talking maybe um, to my fellow conservatives who are listeners. Don't fall for the alarmism about social media censorship. Um, the fact of the matter is, if you have a conservative message in this country, you can get it out on every single platform, every single platform. Now, it might be the case that there are people who push the very boundaries and the outer edge of the boundaries, and they've been uh, had their hands slapped. But we've had an awful lot of, I think, alarmism and the elevation, the plural, what's the old saying? The plural of anecdote is not data. Uh we have a lot of anecdotes. We have anecdotes about um, individuals, anecdata uh, from individuals who faced some modification of their YouTube account or been knocked off Twitter. But the reality is, especially if you look at Facebook, if you look at the actual who are the top political publishers on Facebook, it is remarkable how successful, how, you know, even new conservative media startups are sometimes more have more uh, of a platform on Facebook than like the New York Times does. And so 
Uh, I think a lot of our problems surrounding big tech is, and, and a lot of the anger and the angst surrounding big tech is related to the elevation of individual stories and treating them as emblematic of something that it does of a phenomenon that doesn't exist at scale. And that's causing a lot of unjustified angst. And if there's one thing we do not need, because there's a, a lot of justified angst right now, uh, we don't need unjustified angst. And and as I told somebody in a, in a uh, back and forth recently, I have been posting and writing about every hot button topic under the sun since social media started. And the only time I've ever faced someone trying to censor me was an alt, alt-right racist <laughs> trying to shut me down for criticizing them. And it is entirely possible to be a person of of deep belief and to speak freely in American social media. It just is. And and we need to we need to stop thinking it's that precarious. Thank you so much, Kate Klonick and David French, for your notes of qualified optimism at a time when light is much needed and for casting so much light on this crucially important topic about the future of digital speech. We the People Friends, your homework, of course, is the writings of our guests, Kate Klonick's article, The New Governors, The People, Rules, and Processes Governing Online Speech, and David French's forthcoming book, Divided We Fall. Kate, David, thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having us. Today's show was engineered by the National Constitution Center's great AV team and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Maggie Gillespie and Lana Ulrich. All of us at the National Constitution Center are here to learn with you by continuing to convene these urgently important constitutional conversations in the weeks, months, and years ahead. You can find these conversations every week on We the People and also on our companion podcast, Live at the National Constitution Center, which is the audio feed of all of the public programs we host at the NCC on constitutional topics. So the homework of the week is please subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center so that you can educate yourself as deeply as possible about the important constitutional issues confronting America. And always remember, dear We the People friends, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity and engagement of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. Sending good thoughts to all of you, dear We the People friends, and look forward to learning again with you soon. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. <laughs>